Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Eddie Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We have come to the beginning of the end of the Torah. So we are at the book of Deuteronomy. We have seen Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and we now come to the fifth and final book of Moses, the fifth and final book of the Torah, Deuteronomy. So before we dive into Deuteronomy, as we always want to do before we read any book of the Bible, we want to orient ourselves in history. Where are we? What's come before? What's coming after? Where are we in the story? So as we think about the scope and sweep of Old Testament history, think of a timeline moving from the left to the right. All the way on the right would be the birth of Jesus. All the way on the left, the first date that we can say with a fair degree of confidence is the birth of Abraham in or around 2167. All these dates are B.C. As we move from the left to the right, the next event we might hit is something called the Patriarchal Age. The word patriarch just means founding father or ruling father. This would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. The third and final patriarch is Jacob. When he dies, the family of Abraham has grown to be 70 people, and they are living in the nation of Egypt. They're in Egypt for over 400 years. They come under Egyptian slavery and oppression, and that slavery and oppression ends in 1446. In 1446, God sends Moses into the land of Egypt to issue the famous decree, let my people go. And God brings his people out in what we call the Exodus in a spectacular display of his power and grace. He leads the people out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he enters into a formal covenant. And the family of Abraham in many ways becomes the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. They spend one year at Mount Sinai getting organized as a nation, setting up the laws, building the tabernacle. And they should have taken a two-week walk which is how long it would have taken, how long it would take me and you to walk from where we think Mount Sinai is into the promised land. But instead it took them 40 years because as we detailed in our last examination of the book of Numbers, they did not believe God and they hardened their hearts in rebellion. And that always is going to lead to judgment and suffering. And so the entire generation of adults who leaves Egypt dies in the wilderness. And the last of these adults to die is Moses. Moses dies in 1406. In 1406, Joshua takes over leadership of God's people. He leads them into the land of Canaan. He leads them for 20 to 30 years. They conquer much or most of the Canaanite territory, and they begin to settle into their inheritance. When Joshua dies, this takes us to what we call the period of the judges. This is from about 1380 to 1050 BC, a little over 300 years. Judges are not courtroom officials. They are regional military leaders that God raises up to deliver his people from foreign oppression. The last judge is a man named Samuel. Samuel anoints the first king, a man named Saul. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. He looks the part, tall, strong, handsome, wealthy, but he is weak. He does not fear God and he fears man and therefore God removes him as king and puts a man after his own heart, and that is King David, onto the throne of Israel. David rules for about 40 years and is to David that God makes the outrageously amazing promise that David's line will produce the deliverer that we have been waiting for since Genesis 3.15. And in, in many ways, from this point forward, the rest of the Old Testament, we are looking for this Messiah, this deliverer from the line of David, prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. When David dies in 971, his son Solomon takes the throne. Solomon reigns for 40 years. It is Solomon that builds the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon's heart drifts away from God due to marrying women who worship foreign gods and stacking up wealth for himself and falling into idolatry, a very sad end to his life. 
And as a result of that disobedience, when his son Rehoboam takes the throne, God splits the kingdom of Israel in two. We now have two Israelite kingdoms. We have Israel in the north. You'll often see it called Samaria or perhaps even Ephraim. That's referring to the 10 northern tribes. They're ruled by 20 kings coming from 10 different dynasties over their 200-year run. This run ends in 722 because none of those 20 kings worship Yahweh. They led the people deeper and deeper into idolatry until they reached the point of no return. And in 722, Assyria, which was at that time the dominant power of the ancient Near East, conquered and exiled the northern kingdom, and they never come back. The southern kingdom, Judah, which is ruled by David's family, all of the kings, 20, come from this one dynasty. And it's a mix of some good and some bad kings. The people have periods where they're walking with the Lord, but mostly... They're declining, maybe just not as quickly as Israel, but they're going down that same downward trajectory as Israel. Assyria, again, they're the ones who conquered Israel. They are themselves conquered by Babylon. And Babylon takes over control of the ancient Near East, and that includes control over Judah. Uh, Judah tries to rebel against Babylonian authority multiple times. And as a warning to not do it again, Babylon exiles just sort of waves of sort of the wealthy and the most prominent citizens and their children, exiles them off to Babylon. This happens in 605. That's when Daniel gets exiled, 597. That's when Ezekiel gets exiled. But it's in 586 that Babylon has had enough. And they surround the city of Jerusalem. They lay siege. They destroy the city, destroy the temple, exile the Davidic family and slaughter most of them and exile most of the people. And it seems as if God's plan of redemption centered on the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, has failed. But God does not fail. Babylon is itself conquered by Persia, and the first king of the Persian Empire is a man named Cyrus. He issues a decree allowing all conquered peoples to go home. About 50,000 Jews take him up on that offer. They go home and they rebuild the second temple in 516. So in 516 BC, the Jews are back in the promised land. Sacrifices are being offered. So in 516, the Jews are back in the promised land. The temple has been rebuilt. The sacrifices are being offered. But it seems like not much has changed in the hearts of the people. God sends Ezra back in 458 to reform the worship of the people. He sends Nehemiah back in 444 to rebuild the walls. And in 430, Malachi writes his book of prophecy, and that brings the Old Testament to a close. So our story, Deuteronomy, is all the way back in around 1406. Deuteronomy is, in many ways, Moses' farewell speech to the people of Israel. He knows he's about to die, and so he is giving him their last charge, their last word of encouragement and warning to follow God. So who wrote this book? Moses. Though it seems pretty clear that an editor helped arrange the book after Moses died, uh, it's not impossible that Moses wrote Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, which reads, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all of his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It is possible that God said, hey, Moses, write this down because no one, no one's going to come after you who's like you. But probably this is a later editor. But we're still right in saying Moses wrote the vast majority of this book. When? 1406 just before Israel conquered the promised land and 40 years after the Exodus, where this book takes place entirely on the west bank of the Jordan River. So Israel is looking across the Jordan River into their inheritance. They've been waiting for a long time to get it. And Moses is standing in front of them and giving this final speech. So why? Why do we have this book? First, to give Israel a constitution to govern their lives as a nation. Israel is no longer just a family or a clan or a tribe or a worshiping community. They're a nation, and they need laws. They need a constitution just like the United States of America does. 
who does what, who's responsible for what, how are crimes punished, how are taxes collected, how does the worship happen? They need laws, and Deuteronomy is that set of laws. Second, to give clarity on the nature of covenant love. God has saved Israel because he loved them, and he has saved them to spread that love throughout the whole world. And so God gives them Deuteronomy to say, hey, here's what love looks like. Here's what love looks like in action. Here's what love looks like in your life. It looks like obedience to these commands. Loving me and loving your neighbor will take this shape. Third, to give Israel instruction in two areas. One, to teach them about Yahweh's greatness, his uniqueness, as there's no other God. Don't follow the gods of the nations. There is no God like your God. And to teach them and remind them about Yahweh's past grace and his future grace. We talked about that in one of our episodes in Leviticus. Also to give Israel instruction in their sin, to remind them that they were not saved because of anything that they did or anything that they had to offer and how, like us, Israel was prone to wander and prone to sin. And so they need to be reminded of their sinfulness, not so they could be depressed and gloomy, but to A, just remind them of how gracious God is, but B, to keep them on their toes, be on guard against the subtle, dangerous nature of sin. And then a third area that Israel needed instruction in is how to enjoy a lasting covenant relationship. God has given them a salvation. How do you use this? How do you enjoy this? It's like if someone gave me a Ferrari, that'd be incredible. I don't know how to drive a stick. So if I had a Ferrari, it would just sit out in my driveway. I wouldn't be able to use it unless someone taught me how to drive a stick shift. If you have a Ferrari that you'd like to give me and the ability to teach me, please let me be your guinea pig. But for the nation of Israel, God has given them this amazing salvation far greater than any Ferrari but they need to be shown how to use it, how to get maximum benefit out of their salvation. So we've got our bearings. Let's take a look at the first of our themes that we want to study in the book of Deuteronomy. Number one, the author of Deuteronomy provided a constitution for guiding Israel's relationship with God. I'm going to make a big claim here. And the claim is that there's perhaps no book that influences biblical thought more than Deuteronomy. You may not realize that, but Deuteronomy is one of the, if not the, most influential book in the Bible. What makes Deuteronomy so important? Well, one, it clarifies the significance of all that comes before it. So Deuteronomy is looking back at the story of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and sort of wrapping it all up, summing it all up, and saying, hey, here's what matters. Here's what we need to do going forward as a part of God's plan of redemption. So we look through back through the lens of Deuteronomy to see why all these stories matter and how all of these stories actually come together to tell one story. The second reason Deuteronomy is so important is because Deuteronomy provides Israel with a constitution for guiding their covenant relationship. Again, there are several million people on the banks of the Jordan River looking across about to go into the land of Canaan. They need rules. They need regulations. They need to be taught how to worship, taught how to work, taught how to be generous, taught how to be holy. They need laws. The kings do this. The judges do this. The, you know, the, the priests do this. They, they need rules. They need laws to govern their relationship. Third reason Deuteronomy is so important is because it gives later biblical writers a lens through which to view Israel's history. We're getting a bit ahead of our story, but when we get to the book of Kings, we're going to talk about something called Deuteronomistic history, which is not fun to say for me. But what it means is that we are to look at the story of Israel's history, and we are to evaluate every person, be they king or priest or common person, every event, every everything, through the lens of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy is the rubric by which every Israelite is to be graded. This is the standard that they're being held to. And so you will find it very difficult to understand the ministry of the prophets if you don't understand Deuteronomy, because the prophets are basically just holding up the book of Deuteronomy and saying, you are not paying attention to this book. You are not living according to this book. And that is putting you in a very dangerous position. Fourth reason Deuteronomy is so important is Deuteronomy clarified what man's response to Yahweh should be in their lives. Right? All the other gods of the nations make different demands. You offer this sacrifice, or you have to do this, or you have to do that, or you know you can really ignore this God for most of the year, but come harvest time, you really got to you know, pay them special attention, or if you're about to go on a sea voyage, pay this God attention. And so Israel needed to know how to respond to their God. How do you live in relationship with not only millions of other people, but also the creator of the universe? So that is, those are just four reasons why Deuteronomy is so important. It also serves as a document of covenant renewal for people in the promised land. Remember, the Exodus generation, the adults that left Egypt and that went to Mount Sinai, that got entered into a covenant with, they're all dead. And so the children, those born in the wilderness or those who were very young when the Exodus happened, they need to be taught, they need to be told, A, the covenant is still enforced with you. It didn't end with your parents' rebellion. You are now you are now the inheritors of this covenant promise. And B, here's how you need to live to avoid making the same mistakes as your parents. In Deuteronomy, Yahweh is reaffirming his covenant commitment to Israel. I'm committed to this nation. The generation before you, they died for their sins. You are a new generation, a new opportunity to obey me. So I'm committed to you. Commit yourself to me. But in Deuteronomy, Yahweh also develops his covenant commitment to Israel. We sort of take this relationship to the next step because he's now no longer just going to be the God who is guiding them towards the promised land. He's now going to dwell in their midst in the land of their inheritance. And that's going to change some things. For those who actually lived in the promised land, those who got to go in and enjoy the inheritance, Deuteronomy gave them the key to understanding all the other books of the law and showed them how to live a fruitful, blessed life in the land of Canaan. And Deuteronomy was intended to serve in this function of guiding the relationship of the people to their Lord until the Messiah appeared. In Galatians 3, 23 through 24, Paul sort of looking back on the Old Testament says, now before faith came, talking about the Messiah and the Holy Spirit, now before faith came, we, the people of Israel, were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this makes the law seem pretty bad, imprisoned, held captive. Seems like Jesus had to rescue us from God's law, and that's not what's happening here. What this verse is saying is there was a role in the Roman society where a young heir to a family's fortune, right? Just imagine like a six-year-old boy. Think about all the bad choices six-year-old boys make. And what a wealthy family would do to protect this young boy is they would assign a slave to be their guardian. Now, in an ultimate sense, obviously, this young boy owns this slave. But in an immediate day-to-day -day sense, this slave's job was to tell this young boy what to do. No, don't throw that rock. No, don't jump off that roof. No, don't try and wrestle that bear. Right? Like Just constantly shutting down bad ideas that the six-year-old has until the six-year-old grows up and becomes the heir he's meant to be. So the law was to serve as a guardian protecting the people, guiding the people, saying like, hey, you know, don't worship that God. Don't do that. Yes to that. To teach them how to live until the Messiah came. One of the things I like about Deuteronomy, because I'm a very simple man, is it's, Deuteronomy is a very binary book. There's really just two choices. You can choose obedience, which will lead to blessing, and disobedience, which leads to curses. And this also speaks to the purpose of the book. 
Children need simple choices. You can't give a kid 15 options. You get it's like, hey, hey, buddy, you want tater tots or French fries, right? Like, what, which one do you want? And that's the one you're going to have. And so Deuteronomy doesn't give Israel a thousand choices. They say, hey, obey God or not obey God. Which one do you want? And Deuteronomy challenges even us. We are being challenged to make a choice. What are we going to choose? Are we going to be faithful to Jesus or unfaithful? There's not a third option. God did not give us one, and there isn't one to be found anywhere else. So as you read through Deuteronomy, you'll notice that Moses preaches three sermons, sort of expounding on the laws given at Mount Sinai. He then issues a warning, gives a blessing, and dies. And all of this of Deuteronomy, the story of Deuteronomy, it's wrapped in the kingdom-building narrative that began all the way back in Genesis. Again, you can read Deuteronomy as a self-contained narrative, but you shouldn't read it like that. It's, it's a continuing part of God's redemption and plan of redemption that began all the way back in Genesis. What Deuteronomy serves for the people is as an instruction manual for life in the promised land. Moses clarified what an actual, real-life covenant relationship would look like. Like, okay, here we go. You've been away at summer camp. Now real life begins. You've gone to the youth retreat. You've rededicated your life to the Lord. Now here's what it looks like on Monday morning to live a life of faithfulness. And Israel had to listen to the words that Moses was speaking to them. It says in Deuteronomy 31, 12, God says to Moses, assemble the people, men, women, and the little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, everybody, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. Because as Deuteronomy 32, 47 says, this is no empty word for you, but your very life, life or death is hanging in the balance for the people of Israel as they hear God's word. And friends, I would press on you, the same thing is true for us. When we hear God's word, it is a life or death proposition. If we choose to harden our hearts and walk away from God and say, I'll do things my way, we are choosing death. If we choose to bow the knee and submit and say, Lord, you are king, you know what's best, we are choosing life. Deuteronomy is breathed out by God and inspired, which means it's profitable for us. It was profitable for the people of Moses' day. It is profitable to us to read, to begin to understand what it looks like to devote yourself, heart, soul, mind, and strength to God, to live a life that leads to not just blessing in this life, but blessing for all of eternity. If I've not yet convinced you about how important Deuteronomy is, uh, I want to just give you one last thing to think about. Jesus and the apostles quoted from Deuteronomy over 100 times in the New Testament. It's one of their favorite books to quote. Perhaps Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Isaiah, that would be probably their top three. And if Jesus and the apostles think it's that important, I think we should as well. So friends, the next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look about what it means to take God and his word seriously. But for now, take up and read. God bless.